was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, it is a true honor for me to announce our guest. It is the one and only lyricist Tom Jones, who is the author of the longest-running show ever, The Fantastics. On Broadway, his work has also been seen in 110 in the Shade and I Do, I Do and Celebration. Off-Broadway with his partner Harvey Schmidt, he has written Philemon, Roadside, and The Show Goes On. He is also the author of the upcoming shows The Game of Love, La Tempesta, and Harold and Maud. It was a thrill for me to be able to hear the insights and stories of a man whose career in the theater has spanned over 70 years, and I know it will be for you too. So here is Tom Jones. So I first want to ask you, how did you first get interested in theater and writing? When I was very young, uh, like two and a half years old, I got a very serious case of pneumonia and uh, at that time it was before they had invented penicillin and so at that age very very impressionable I had to go to the this is in West Texas in the panhandle I had to go to a hospital I was in there for almost three months and uh, they had to every day come in and they took out a, they cut out a rib uh, oh, so that they could really? pump my lungs out uh, every day and at that age it left i, I felt uh, i was uh, amazingly i recovered from it but i was always um, felt um, I, I don't know i felt uh, what's the right word? I hate to say deformed, but I think that's really the word. Anyway, I found at an early age that I could uh, kind of win the social acceptance by uh, impersonating things and uh, telling stories or recreating things I'd heard on the radio. And Mm -hmm. it became sort of my opening to acceptance in the world. Beyond Above and beyond that, uh, I come from a family uh, who none of them in any way connected with the theater. I mean, we just, I grew up in a world where there was no theater at all. But uh, they were, (laughs) my grandfather was a great storyteller and a kind of um, performer in a sense, you know. So uh, that was how it got started, really. So at what point did you sort of discover theater on your own, if there wasn't any when you were growing up? Well, in school, in school, in school there was, um, in, in, uh, again, to repeat, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of the Depression, in the middle of the Dust Bowl, in the panhandle 
dry plains area of Texas. So um, it was, um, uh, there was no dramatic thing, but there was something called uh, recitation or, or declamation, that's what it was called, where people would learn uh, speeches or poems and declaim them. So mm. I became expert at declaiming speeches and I continued my efforts. Uh, and then when I got into our little high school, <clears throat> there was maybe one or two plays, um, you know, short, uh, very amateurish plays that I performed in, but inspired by movies of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, where they're always getting their friends together to put on a show. <laughs> I often would uh, get my friends together and put on a show, and it was during World War II by that time, and uh, I would gather a little group together, and we would go to the various army camps near where I lived, and we would uh, do shows, usually not plays, but like songs and comedy routines, you know, that sort of variety stuff. But at some so at some point, <clears throat> without knowing anything about the theater, I had convinced myself by the by the time I was a freshman in high school that I wanted to be in the theater. And it was, uh, I don't know what it was based on, but uh, anyway, I, uh, I so I started, even in high school, like trying to get plays to read, which was not easy to do. Yeah. And... Uh, trying to do anything that I could to get some sort of theatrical experience. Then when I finally went off to the University of Texas in Austin, uh, they, uh, I, they had a drama department and I entered that. And for the first time in my life, I found there were other people like me. And so mm. I, those were very happy years for me. Uh, I was six years there two degrees, a uh, bachelor's degree and a master's degree, both in the field of directing. So when did you, or at what point did you decide that writing was what you wanted to do within the theater world? Uh, it was, um, yeah, no, I, you know, I started off at, in college as an actor, uh, to be an acting major, because I really, I had no theatrical experience at all. I didn't really know about directors. And mm -hmm. when I got into it, I did a lot of acting. And then uh, I got fascinated by this other part, directing. And only when uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, mm -hmm. uh, they have a, <clears throat> excuse me, had an annual college musical, not put on by the drama department, in the six years that I was at the drama department, which was otherwise a really wonderful school with wonderful professors and wonderful opportunities, but they never did a musical the whole six years I was there. Oh. And uh, they they felt it was too frivolous. And, uh, but, so anyway, when I was in graduate school, uh, I was got a few jobs, actually. The, the Austin, Texas Civic Theater did an annual um, melodrama with, with the, uh, variety acts in between. I got a job, actually got paid for directing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, then I 
got a job directing the college musical, which was put on by the journalist sorority or something. It was an annual event, and uh, it's student-written, but the scripts that they gave that I received and the songs the people submitted to show off their talents were just terrible. And I thought, God, I can't direct, I can't direct this. So I thought, well, I could do this better myself oh. uh, if I could find a composer. So there was a, I had a friend who was in the art department, a very wonderful painter, who was also a terrific um, self-taught pianist, uh, Harvey Schmidt. And oh, so yeah. I asked him if he'd like to, the, the, they paid a little fee for writing the thing. And uh, I asked him if he'd like to share the fee and uh, help me out. And he said yes. And then we wrote a college musical together oh. just uh, at the end of my graduate time there, right before I was drafted in the service. And it was like a very, very stunningly successful. I mean, oh. it was really, really? <laughs> our, our college friends feel that we've been going downhill ever since, actually, you know. <laughs> But uh, uh, it it was it was in the big auditorium, uh, a thousand seat auditorium, and uh, it was for three performances over a weekend, and it sold out immediately. And then by the end, by the third performance, they they had sold out all of the standing room, and then they sat people in the aisles, and then they opened the windows so that people could stand outside who couldn't get in tickets to try to listen and see and see what they could. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. and uh, we still had no plans to be writers, either one of us. Oh. But um, that was something about that experience had a great effect upon me because it was like the, react, the relationship between the audience mm. and the, the show was so direct and hot and it was very it was it was a more vital feeling than even the the shakespeare plays and the classic plays that we did which were wonderful most of them uh and which had wonderful productions but this this felt so immediate and uh, so when i went into the army i continued to correspond with harvey who had another year of college and then he graduated, and he was also drafted, and we were in two different army camps. I was in Baltimore, and he was in El Paso, Texas. And so we started, just for fun of it, writing songs uh, by mail, you know. Uh, I would send him lyrics, and he would compose something, uh, and, uh, and they, he'd get his friends together in the army camp, and they'd sing it and put it on either a disc or... It was before tapes were invented, actually, and uh, sent that back to me. And we began to collect enough stuff. And so when he got out of the army, uh, he joined. I had gone up to New York, and he joined me. We decided to try to, to like, for the fun of it, because I still wanted to be a director. And he became almost immediately a very successful commercial artist, oh. a graphic artist. I mean, a big time success. I mean, he was like immediately liked in Look Magazine and he was hired by NBC and he was like 
would got assignments to do these extraordinary things. Um, Standard Oil hired him on the 300th anniversary of their company in New Jersey to do a series of 30 or 40 paintings of anything he wanted in the state of New Jersey. And then when he did that, uh, Standard Oil paid him and then donated them to hang in the Capitol Rotunda where they still are, I assume. And uh, anyway, he was very successful. So we tried to uh, get off the ground with the musical and uh, that's a whole, then eventually that wound up doing the Fantastics. All so did, after you came just, out of... Oh, go ahead. After you came out of the army, was moving to New York an immediate decision? You went right to New York? Uh, I... <clears throat> I... I was afraid of New York, you know. I was oh. not as afraid then because uh, I had uh, spent a year and a half in the Army in Baltimore and made big frequent trips to New York where I had many friends. So I, um, it was a big, scary city, and I'm a small-town boy. But uh, the fact that I had friends there and that I was sort of familiar how to get around. <clears throat> but even so, I decided that... I would go to New York, and if I hadn't made some kind of success in six months, I would give it up and go back home and teach drama school someplace. You know. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I, I all. Um, it's it's hard to know how fate works, but um, uh, and uh, I did not have a. I had a curious, a resounding success. About three months in, I, uh, there was a young actor named Tom Poston, and you don't know who that is, but he went on to fame as a very successful sitcom actor and comic. And he and a, a friend of mine wanted to do a comedy team, so I wrote a sketch and directed it for them, and we got into a showcase in, the, in one of the big Broadway theaters. They were showing off young talent. Just a one-day-only performance in the same theater where, in fact, they were showing uh, My Fair Lady was playing. And uh, our little routine was a huge success. We got wonderful write-ups, and we got invitations, and we accepted an invitation to do uh, to appear, for them to appear, at a supper club there, a very... That was a big thing at that time to do songs and comedy things in supper clubs. Very she she. <laughs> so I wrote it, but it was terrible. <laughs> it just bombed uh, because I'd never been to a supper club and I didn't know anything <laughs> about it. Later on uh, in our careers, we we wrote a lot of very successful things because I had finally gone. I've learned something about it, but anyway. At that point, I was so discouraged, and I was like working in a bookstore and living in a crummy little apartment, and oh. uh, and I just felt everything. So I went back home to Texas for a few months and waited for Harvey to get out of the service, oh. which he did, and then we both went up to New York. I went again, this time with him, and we had written the 
basis for a review called Portfolio. And uh, again, it was picked up, but it never got on the stage. So So, um, um, around this time, I know that you and Harvey Schmidt wrote some material for the Julius Monk reviews. So how did you... Yes. How did you meet him, and how did you come to write those? Well, when I did that first comedy thing, the first year I was there, in the first second month I was there, third month, uh, one of the people who loved the material and everything was Julius Monk, who was what he called the conferencier, meaning the sort of the producer and, and master of ceremonies, but... Of, of a place called the Ruban Bleu, which had introduced many, many famous people over many, many years. And, you know, uh, even people like Liberace and all that all got their start there, and, and uh, the Smothers Brothers, a lot of people. And um, so that's where we did the, I wrote the act and where it bombed. And uh, oh. a few years later, when after Harvey had come to New York, Julius left the Ribbon Bleu and opened a, a, a thing called the, the Downstairs. It was in a, in a building that was about to be torn down <laughs> right across from Radio City Music Hall. And they had a cellar, and uh, he, he did a, a review there called Four Below. And uh, Harvey and I wrote some material for that, and that went over very well. And then... Uh, he while there, he, he, the, 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 he was in the cellar. There was a bar up above where really it was a hangout for hookers mainly. Oh. So he sort of took over that and made it a very she-she thing. For so the review was going on downstairs, and this was called upstairs at the downstairs, and the other was called mm-hmm. downstairs at the upstairs. At the upstairs, they had individual performers. I don't know if you have you ever heard of Blossom Deary? I have, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah she, yeah. for example, would be there. People like that, you know, wonderful talent. She was so great. Yeah. Um, and uh, then, when the building was then torn down because uh, uh, to make what is the Time Life Building now, he got a whole uh, townhouse on Fifty Sixth Street. Beautiful old townhouse with a marble staircase going up to the second floor. And the second floor, he created a wonderful little place for reviews. And for, for like 10 or 12 years, he did reviews there. And and the, the downstairs, it was just reversed. The downstairs, in that case, was where the bar was and where they had the elegant individual acts. Oh. Um, and uh, so... Uh, we wrote a lot of those, and the last one we did there was one called Demi Dozen, where we wrote, uh, I think, ten of the numbers, most of the numbers, we call them comedy numbers and so forth. And at that point, uh, Harvey had was like enormously successful in his art career, and he amazingly and generously agreed to take off from his art career for a year, which was a very daring thing to do, so that we could really try to finish off this musical we were working on and try to get it on. 
and uh, that was the Fantastics. And so uh, that, which opened, uh, as I'm sure you may may have read, at, as a as a one act musical, as part of a three one acts at a summer theater that a great actress Mildred Dulick was producing at on the stage at Barnard College. Oh. Doing a summer theater there at Barnard in the minor Lathan Auditorium. And um, we did the Fantastics. We had reduced it down to a one act. And then we had offers to produce it. And when we accepted those offers, we re- pushed it back up into a full piece oh. and spent a year raising the money, which was, it was only $12,500, but it took one solid year to raise it. And then we opened at Sullivan Street, got mixed notices, nearly died, but eventually um, caught on. And then it ran for 42 years there. And then closed for four years and then reopened at the Jerry Orbach Theater in Midtown and where it ran another 10 years. So I want to ask you... Oh, before I ask you more about the Fantastics, I want to ask you just one more question about these early reviews, which was, were you mostly writing comedy songs during this time or ballads? Oh, well, no, we, we, were, we were writing <coughs> musicals. We weren't writing review things anymore. Oh. So oh. The, we, wrote, we wrote songs as, were, as seemed to be required by the dictates of the story that was being told. Yeah. So then I want to ask you not just about the producing side of the Fantastics, but how did you come up with the idea to adapt that property? Oh. Uh, I had a great, a great teacher at college named B. Iden Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, who had a fabulous career as British, and he had worked with George Bernard Shaw, and he had... Uh, directed in England uh, at Stratford-on-Avon, and he was a great expert on Shakespeare and came to this country and uh, became a well-known director. He directed, uh, gave John Barrymore his first serious role on stage, things like that. And uh, he also started the first drama department in the United States at Carnegie Tech. But after he... You know, many, many years later, when he was in his 70s, I think, he came to the University of Texas and uh, taught Shakespeare, period play production there for uh, most of my college career. I was very fortunate because he had a great influence on my life. One of the things he had done when he was directing in England uh, for a summer thing was a an English translation of the very first play by Edmund Rostand, who went on to write Cyrano, you know, and oh. so forth. And that uh, that play, uh, a woman writing under a man's name, uh, did the adaptation and changed it around quite a bit and, uh, and uh, called it The Fantastics, uh, with a spell the way, we, you know, with the C-K-S. And uh, so we used to do, when I was a student in those uh, 
period play production classes, we used to do scenes from that piece, the Rostam piece, in that particular translation. <coughs> so I, uh, uh, when we were looking for a musical, I we we came came suggested that, and that's that was the basis of that. That translation was the basis of uh, our thing. Although ours is very very different, not only being a musical, but there's no none of the presentational aspect. There's no uh, narrator. There's no mute. There's no old actors. There's no cardboard moon. There's none of that whatsoever. Yeah. But the the basic story, which is a spoof of Romeo and Juliet, that remains the same. So you talk in your book about the concept of when you pick a source material, feeling like you have something new to add to it. So what do you think that was for you and Harvey Schmidt when you were writing The Fantastics? Well, we started off trying. It was not called The fan. We didn't use that translation at first. We took the oh. story, but uh, that we tried to write, uh, based on that story, a, a musical in the Rogers <coughs> and Hammerstein form, with big cast and a set in the Southwest, two ranches, one Anglo, one Spanish, and there then the spoof of Romeo and Juliet, but we, had, we also relied much more on Romeo and Juliet. We had, we had a villain, and we had the nurse, you know, for Juliet and all of that stuff. And it was, it, the little story, the Rostam story, simply couldn't sustain that. And it was, yeah. it was just, it was pathetic, really. And, and the name of it was Joy Comes to Dead Horse. Oh. <laughs> a, a winner of a title, right? <laughs> and um, so um, when we finally... We'd, we were about to give up, and then we were going to, like, give up on writing because uh, oh, really? Harvey had to get back to his art career, and, and I I couldn't go on forever, like, just being a bum. And so uh, uh, we had a friend who had, from the University of Texas who was a director and who had gotten a job directing three one-acts at the summer theater at Barnard, and he said to us, if you guys can take that musical you've been working on all these years and and make it into a one-act musical, a long one-act, then I can give you a production in three weeks after the time you finish it. Uh, if, you, if you can finish it in three weeks, I'll give you a production three weeks after. So we realized that First of all, it was going to be at a small company in a small theater. So we just threw out all of the stuff that we had, pretty much, except the song Try to Remember. And I was very caught up, as was Word Baker, their director, in this presentational theater concept. Mm -hmm. So I decided to just write all the things that I wanted. I had to put the whole piece in verse to have a narrator, to have a cardboard moon, to have a mute, to have, uh, you know, just uh, and, and it, admit that we're in a theater. Start mm -hmm. off by talking to the audience. Uh, you know, El Gallo says after he sings, try to remember, now let me tell you a few things you may want to know before we begin the play. Mm -hmm. So it's, 
it's really a clearly um, and so that opened up everything and then with that we also went back and I went back to the the old British version that that I had dropped off at the dropped by the wayside called the Fantastics and I went oh. back to that and that became our guide and I just took that and put in all of the presentational stuff that I wanted to because I figured it was not going to go anywhere anyway, you know. And to my delight and surprise, that all seemed to work. And, and there turns out there was an audience for it. So at what point in this process did you meet Laurie Noto and talk about how he was so essential in getting the musical to be the success that it was? Uh, Laurie uh, came to see this short it was a one-week run at Barnard, and he offered to uh, to produce it. And uh, he really had no background. He actually had been an actor, but oh. he was working here, the family, he was working as an artist representative uh, for commercial art. And uh, he loved the piece, and he helped put it together. I mean... We, we had three different offers from three different producers. Uh, but the thing that won us over to Laurie, I mean, he loved the piece very much. And he also agreed that he would, he would sign a paper that he would not make any final decisions if, unless Harvey and Wordbaker, the director, and I were like a deadlocked uh, in disagreement. Other than that, he would let, leave it all the decisions to us, all the artistic decisions. So, and it all went very well. And but then the opening night didn't go very well, uh, and uh, then the notices were not bad, but they were not money notices. Yeah. And so we struggled along. And the reason the fantastic ran all those years is because for in the beginning time, when everybody advised him to close it, Lori, even though he didn't have any money really, and he had a family and, th and two kids and, and one on the way, uh, he, he, he staked everything in his life on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the kind of thing that just doesn't ever happen anymore. And even then, it didn't happen for very, very often. So uh, we owed a lot to him. Later, as, as we went off to other careers, he became more involved and... Uh, then when he did a Broadway musical on his own without us, and it was a great, huge failure, mm -hmm. then he became more kind of like uh, ingrown. He stopped going to the theater. He like he became one of the actors in the company. He it oh. was the kind of the thing where he would also go and turn off light bulbs and <laughs> try to save money. You know, like he, yeah. it, it, he became a different person and very difficult to deal with in many ways. But there's no question that the longevity of the show, after 10 years, Harvey and I were ready to say, you know, this is amazing. This is enough. Who needs more than, than 10 years? Yeah. But Lori said, no, no, this is going to run forever. And he almost did it then. Um, you mentioned that it didn't get such great reviews to start with. And you also mentioned that it has sort of an odd relationship with critics. Describe sort of 
how the reviews changed in tone over the years as it became a bigger success? Well, um, <clears throat> they they did. They, it, as I say, I mean the the. We got a lot of very good reviews in the for the opening, but yeah. the most powerful papers were the New York Times and the Herald Tribune, and both of those liked the show but felt it wasn't quite good enough to survive. Uh, as the show ran on for years and years, then for at the end of the first summer when we survived, we, we got a very nice follow-up thing in the New York Times, which was very helpful. And then we got wonderful reviews, by and large, for years and years. But then, after it had been around a long time, then we, we started getting reviews like, I think people were like, say, think, saying to themselves, well, why is this run so long? It isn't that good. And, um, and then the critics, and the New York Times in particular, got very, very, very negative, and they really, um, uh, really set out. I think almost to destroy the show. I mean, they um, they did. They went out of their ways to do nasty things. <laughs> I thought, uh, uh, for example, on the tenth anniversary or the twentieth, I can't remember. You know, <laughs> maybe the twentieth. They. They sent a woman who was a, a very uh, strident, ardent, and one would even say strident, uh, early feminist, who was like uh, very, and, and they sent her down. She wasn't a reviewer, but she, she said, they sent her down, and she wrote, a, you know, a really nasty review. Oh. Uh, and they're in the Sunday paper, you know. And uh, and the last line of which is, New York will be a better place when this show closes, oh. for example. And uh, also during that time, the New Yorker got to a thing, got somebody there in their listings, and they they did really really nasty things, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, and then. Another 10 years went by, and then we began to get good notices again, you know. <laughs> but by and large, <laughs> and the book for this last revival, which I directed using Word Baker's staging, the one at the Snapple, the Jerry Orbach Theater, uh, again, it's like similar to the, the first review. The, 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 obviously, this has been Brantley, and he yeah. obviously had read the first review because he quoted it. Uh, but like the first review, he, he, he raved about me as an actor, but put down the piece as just um. trifling and unimportant. And, you know, no reason why it should have run so long, you know. But, you, you know, it, it did, and it, and it still and, does. It still yeah. goes up. And that after, particularly after uh, the revival, uh, after the show closed after 42 years and then reopened, I, uh, without Lori forbidding me to make changes, I was able to make significant changes uh, that I think helped the show a lot. 
I actually, Could you tell us some of the changes that you made to the Fantastics in the revival? Uh, well, mostly little things that over a period of many... An interesting thing happened. There was the custom then, and probably still is, that a director of a show, a musical or a play, in those days, after he directed it, really didn't tend to it anymore. You know, that was yeah. left up to the stage manager. But so Word Baker, after he did the Fantastics, moved on to other shows. And so, but the show kept running. And, uh, and uh, Harvey and I felt it shouldn't be done by the stage manager. So we, we did all of the casting, unless we were busy out of oh. the country, which we frequently were, or working on our new show, which we frequently were. But we did all the casting, and then we put the the actor, the stage managers blocked the actor in the, about replacement part, you know? Uh, and then we would come and work with them, and that continued, well, right up to, for 50 years, really. And during that time, I... Watch, so I would go watch the show, and Harvey would watch it. And little places, I think, you know, like this, this doesn't, this doesn't work as well. As if this is too hard for the actor to pull this off. Yeah. This doesn't work as well as it could. If I could just take this moment and make it a little more honest or a little something. And so I did that over. The one big change was that we had a song originally called the Rape Song. And it was, which was some, a little spoof using the word rape, and uh, which was in the original fantastic script that we worked from. And we didn't think a thing about it. Nobody did. Not a single reviewer ever mentioned it. Mm -hmm. But as the show kept running, I, it, it began to, I'm, as my conscience, consciousness became raised, I got more and more upset and worried about it because I thought, oh. this isn't funny. I mean, even if it's made clear that they're not really talking about literal rape, still you're getting jokes from the use of the naughty word, you know, yeah. bad word. And uh, so I tried for years and years, to, but Laurie said he would take me to court because he had well, he was going to do the show that he had bought, and he wouldn't allow any changes in it. Oh. So, but he did allow many others, but he wouldn't allow that one. So uh, that uh, eventually, then when we when we reopened it, I was able to take the same music and do a complete revised lyric that never uses that or that imagery or those jokes. And it gets just as many laughs as the original. So that, that's a big thing. But most of the changes uh, are, in fact, small. Yeah. And uh, small, but they add up, you know. Uh, mm. But then just a few years ago, towards the very end of the, the, the second run, the second coming <laughs> of the show, uh, uh, there was a wonderful, and is a wonderful young <clears throat> Uh, director <coughs> named Sima Sueco, who's now, uh, who at that time was at the Pasadena Playhouse, and now is the associate artistic director of the arena in Washington, and so talented and so terrific. She had a vision of doing the Fantastics at 
which she did uh, in a way unlike I had ever seen before. And mm. uh, I truly loved it. I went out to Pasadena to see it. And uh, it was a huge success, and rightfully so. And uh, with a multi-ethnic uh, cast, and and then with a number of changes, which I she suggested I made, and then we made a a big change in a show, a number of things in the show, which hasn't really worked right for fifty years. Uh, it's a number called Round and Round, and she had some ideas, and so I worked with her. She came out to my home in Connecticut for a few days, and we worked on it. And then I went to, to Pasadena, and we worked on it there. And uh, all of it, and now all of that is into the, whenever the pandemic is over, as God willing, someday mm -hmm. it may be, uh, all of that, these changes are into the script um, and into mm -hmm. the score. And uh, so I don't, they, the last week, the last weekend of the <clears throat> the second run, which was 10 years long, and it was like, in the 52nd year or 54th year yeah. of something of the run of the show in effect since it opened uh, that uh the the actors i asked the actors if they would mind coming in even though we were closing in a few days and letting me try put this in to the show and they agreed and we, uh, I adapted it to sort of what they were doing, but then we, they came in and rehearsed, and we made this last change three days before the show closed, 54 wow. years after it's only. And I thought, thank you, God. I've lived long enough to do this, and I, I love this piece uh, because it's been wonderful to me, and, and also it's just, it's, it's very personal, and I'm, I'm so glad to be able to make it as good as I can before I depart this veil of tears. Yeah. So you were mentioning earlier in our interview that you were also in the Fantastics in both productions. You played the old actor. So was this something you had in mind while you were writing it originally? No, no, oh, no, no, not at all. Ah, not at all. Uh, I, I had an actor named Ellis Rabb. You, do you know that? Oh, well, that's great. He was a wonderful, he was a wonderful character actor, but he was at that time married to Rosemary Harris, one of my favorite people in the whole world. And uh, they opened a theater producing uh, thing called Association of Producing Artists, APA, that ran for 10 years in New York with many famous, successful productions. But there, as it turned out, the very first week that they opened their, and it opened the same week as the Fantastics, and it by interestingly, it opened with another musical of mine, um, which at that time was called Anatole. Today it's called The Game of Love, with music by Offenbach. So they opened with that, but obviously he wasn't free. So we looked around, tried to find other actors, and we couldn't find the right one. Now, we offered it to, to yet another person, Freddie Warner, and he turned it down. But meanwhile, we were in rehearsal, so I was reading in the part, mm -hmm. and 
it turns out I was brilliant. <laughs> no surprise to me, <laughs> but maybe a surprise to the other actors. Anyway, but I, I was afraid of it seeming like a vanity production. Yeah. And so I, I made up another name and played it under the name of Thomas Bruce. Oh. And, uh, and so when, 50 years later, 45 years later, when we did the, the second production, I, I, uh, used the same name, <laughs> but, but it was, you know, I think I eventually then was persuaded to put it in the program that it was really me. Oh. So one thing you did during the long run of the Fantastics was you sort of went to Japan to oversee the production there. So I want to ask you, what do you think it is about the Fantastics that has not just such long running, but such international appeal? Great lyrics. <laughs> uh, but no, well, <clears throat> I think... I think, um, I mean, it does have good lyrics. It has wonderful music by Harvey, uh, with a very accessible uh, and very satisfying, very knowledgeable show music, but also distinctively its own thing. But it, <clears throat> I think the premise, what I call the presentational, by admitting that we're in the theater and that the audience helps create the show, yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I think that was that was interesting for them to do, and not only just fun, but it's also it touches a nerve. It's like sitting by a fireplace as opposed to central heating. It, yeah. it goes back. Uh, the audience helping to create it goes back to the very origins of what the whole thing is about. And mm. so that, and then another thing is that I, did, I, I, I was studying a lot about Shakespeare when I was working on it, and that's always been, I mean, I admire Rogers and Hammerstein and everybody, but my goal, and by God, was always been Shakespeare. So I was really studying technique just on my own and from books. So I used a lot of techniques from Shakespeare uh, to, as an experiment. And um, one of them was that he, he, he uh, uses, uh, without making a thing of it, and you don't notice it, in, in almost each play, there are certain kinds of images that are used more often than others. And they help provide, without you realizing, a kind of like uh, an environment that you're into. Well, in this show, I decided to take vegetation and uh, the gardens and so forth and um, use that as the, the metaphor. Oh. And, uh, and then it became eventually, uh, at, at the end, right before it all wraps up, El Gallo, the boy and girl, have been disillusioned yeah. and have come back together. And as they're sitting there, like, heartbroken on either side of the platform, wooden platform, 
a guy who comes and stands, they're both sitting, and he stands in the center on the platform forming a triptych. And he says to the audience, there is a curious paradox that no one can explain. Who understands the secret of the reaping of the grain? Who understands why spring is born out of winter's laboring pain? Or why we all must die a bit before we grow again? I do not know the answer. I merely know it's true. I hurt them for that reason and myself a little bit too. So this is this is a very light, fun show, spoof of Romeo and Juliet, but throughout there are things that sort of give it a subtext that people don't ever think about, yeah. but it is part of the texture and it's part of the reason that it survived, as opposed to just being a fun, light musical. It has, it has other colors and other textures. Yeah. So the last fantastic question I want to ask you is, you mentioned that you did a lot of the casting for these productions. Of all the many people who have done it, has there been one cast or one cast member who's been your favorite? <laughs> or, or... Well, some of the people in the original, I mean, Jerry Orbach was really yeah. wonderful. Uh, and, and Rita, and also Kenny Nelson, great, wonderful actor and tremendous voice. And uh, over the years, there have been a, a lot of good people, you know, good people who went on to become famous and good people who were equally good who didn't become famous. But yeah. uh, 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 F. Murray Abraham, who got the oh. Oscar mm -hmm. as Best Actor for Amadeus, got his first job playing the old actor in The Fantastics, for example. And... Uh, uh, more recently, Kristen Chenoweth got her first job in New York uh, playing the girl in The Fantastics, oh. and there have been a lot like that. The, the, one of the most exciting, impressive actress, singers, and unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to remember her name, was oh. in the, the Pasadena Playhouse. She is uh, Korean, and it's she played King and I at Lincoln Center. And she now has her own TV show, which is where she's the star of the show, and I think the show is named after her. Do you happen is, to know who that is? is Ash Ashley Park. Yes, yes, that's who yeah. it is. Oh. Anyway, she she was sublime in this part, and and the the staging that Seema Sueco did, uh, there was a, it's an empty theater. And this group of actors kind of break down the back door and come in oh. and find this the, the like old decaying set of the Fantastics, and they recreate it on that. But so she played the whole show. She was in combat boots the whole oh. time, <laughs> and she was thrilling. She was just so. She has a great voice, but she was so real and so contemporary. <laughs> while being so I want to ask you a few questions about your partnership with Harvey Schmidt and how it sort of worked so did you often write lyrics first or did he or was it at the same time uh, I we in the beginning for the first couple of years we I always wrote lyrics first 
because we didn't know there was another way to do it. I, we had no training in this whatsoever, and I hadn't even seen that many musicals, you know? Yeah. But, uh, uh, and then, oh, we, uh, we, with, uh, there were four of us sharing an apartment, as you do, you know, when you start mm -hmm. out in, in New York, and, uh, uh, Harvey and I and Robert Benton, do you know who that is? He, I, he has I, went on, he wrote um, Bonnie and Clyde and he got oh, uh, oh. Best, he got Oscars as director and writer for uh, Kramer versus Kramer and Places in the Heart. It's great. Anyway, he was one of the roommates and then uh, one more. And uh, uh, I had a piano and Harvey was playing this tune. We had, we had an opening number, but that, this tune I, was just haunting. And so I asked him what it was, and he said he, did, he just had made it up. <clears throat> and then, we didn't even set out to write it. It just came to him. And that is, I liked it so much. So then I wrote a lyric that became Try to Remember. And that was the first song we ever wrote that was music first. And then we went through a period of time because we read an interview with, uh, <clears throat> oh, 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 my mind, um, Lerner and Lowe oh. in the New York Times. They talked about like finding a title first and working from that. So we went through <clears throat> that for a long period of time. And then we started doing both ways, lyrics first, music first, and uh, very often title first. So um, that it, it became what we never really did was work together in a room at the same time. Oh, yeah. So, what do you think it is about your writing styles that goes together so well? You know, I don't know the answer to that. So, I want to ask you about the next show you did, which was 110 in the Shade. So how did you get sort of approached to do that? <clears throat> well, uh, David Merrick uh, had the rights to it. The producer, David Merrick, yeah. had the rights to the, the Rainmaker. And uh, so he, but, and he had agreed with Richard Nash that Richard would write the book and actually become part producer, really, too. But he sent Richard to see the Fantastics. Uh, David had seen it several times, not because he loved it, because he was dating one of the girls who was in it oh. at one point. Uh, and uh, so Richard Nash came down and liked it, and then we met with him. He said, have you ever written anything in the Western mode? And we said, well, we're both from Texas, and we had done a Texas musical called Roadside. And uh, we played him those songs. He loved them. So we made the agreement to, to, and that's how that came about. So was having a musical on Broadway something that you both had always wanted to do? Uh, the, the, the Rainmaker? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or uh, No, we Never thought about it. I always loved the play. In fact, I had a, a long kind of association with it. <clears throat> it was first a TV drama that Richard oh. wrote. Uh, 
And when I finished my two years in the Army in the Counterintelligence Corps, uh, countering intelligence wherever it reared its ugly head, uh, we, I had a week off in what they call a repo depot, where you're waiting, you're not with your old unit anymore, and, and you're in just a kind of barracks with other guys waiting to get out and doing paperwork. Mm. And uh, But they had a TV, and we were watching, and I saw that TV presentation and was so impressed by it. The night before I left Fort Holabird and, and went home at the end of my time in the Army. And then later when I came up with my first brief run in New York, my friend uh, uh, Pat Hingle, an actor from the University of Texas who had, had a big career in New York, but at that time he was just starting out and he was understudying Jimmy, the young boy in the Broadway version of it. So I saw that several times, you know. He got he got me a chance to go in and walk in and sit in an empty seat, you know. Yeah. So I was very familiar with it. And then I liked the movie very much with Catherine Hepburn and Burt Lancaster. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> strangely enough, we never thought of it. And then, but once it was mentioned, then of course we thought, yes, this is we can do this. This is something we, we know and can do. So in writing that show, did you feel that either of you had to change your style at all to make it for Broadway rather than for off-Broadway? No. Or, no. I mean, it was... Uh, I did, it, there's one of two shows that we've done <clears throat> that, that I didn't do the book. Richard did the book. Although I um, think we helped influence the book. Uh, I know we did. But... Uh, so it was not, it's one of the few shows we've done where that didn't include that so-called presentational element. It was a real in the style of basically Rodgers and Hammerstein. It mm -hmm. was our attempt to do a real, uh, a real regular kind of Broadway show. Yeah. And... Uh, so you mentioned in your book that you wrote 114 songs for that show initially. So No, it wasn't quite that many. No. Did well, you say 140 or 114? 114, I think you said in... Uh, yeah, in uh, yes, that's right. I think it was 114. So were there any of those that you particularly liked that didn't end up getting used? Oh, yeah, there are lots of them. Oh. And a lot of them have been recorded on albums. Oh. Uh, yeah. And uh, recorded by, you know, good people. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of really good songs. And it, it's, you know, it wasn't that we wrote one and just rejected it. and do, but we, It was our stupid, I think. It was because it's wasteful, it's not needed. And I... Uh, I would never ever later on I would never do it again. Harvey liked doing it that way more than I because that's the way he did his artwork. He would rather than make the final decision himself, he would do whatever he had an art assignment, he would do like two or three different versions and give it to the the art director of the magazine or or whoever it was and they would decide what they liked. Oh. But I actually prefer making my own decisions. But so uh, Anyway, so what we did in each case, we would set out to write, like we knew at this point, like 
when Lizzie comes back from having gone off to see if she could meet some eligible young men, that when she comes back, she's going to have a song about that. So we just said, we wrote as many different songs as we could think of in, in different ways about that moment. Oh. And uh, so, and and then later on, which is just later towards the end of the act, where she does a song, which uh, is on YouTube with uh, Audra doing it from her Broadway version of a song called Raunchy, which she imagines herself as a kind of honky-tonk girl. But for that same spot, we also wrote five, six, seven songs, you know, and a lot of them very good. And our review that we did, which is recorded and available through, I think, Amazon, uh, called The Show Goes On, we take a whole group of those songs for that spot and and, and uh, have the girls do them like one after another, you know, oh. to show the difference in them. So this was, you mentioned that this was your first of two experiences working with David Merrick. So on this show and I Do I Do, did you sort of see the bad side of him that everyone talks about? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed, we did. <laughs> oh, oh. <clears throat> my favorite joke, theater joke, is uh, a David Merrick joke. Would you like to hear that? Yes, yes, I would. It's uh, um, somebody who goes up to David Merrick's office was uh, in the Sardi building, which was only like six stories high above Sardi's restaurant in the theater district. And uh, this story goes that the, the, a man comes up there and takes the elevator and goes into the room recently and says, I have an appointment with David Merrick. Uh, uh, it's kind of important, so we tell him I'm here. And the people look at him and they say, David Merrick? Uh, David Merrick is, is dead. He's been dead for 15 years. I mean, uh, you, you can't have an appointment with him. And uh, he said, oh, goodness, you're right. I'm so sorry. He leaves, but he comes back the next day, takes the elevator. Comes in and says, it's really important that I see Mr. Merrick. Would you tell him I'm here? And they say, you, you were here yesterday. Didn't you hear what I told you? He's dead. I mean, what's wrong with you? You hard of hearing? He said, oh, that, that's right. You you told me. You told me. He leaves. He doesn't appear for several weeks. But about three weeks later, he comes back, gets off the elevator, says, look, it's really important that I see Mr. Merrick. He's set up this appointment. And the guy loses it. The, the guy says, are you crazy? Are you deaf? What's the matter with you? Can't you hear David Merrick is dead. David Merrick is dead. David Merrick is dead. And the man says, yes, I know. I'd just like to hear you say it. <laughs> so, anyway, that's, that's a, a, a joke, a David Merrick joke. Yes, we had very, uh, he, he was very difficult. But, you know, to give him his credit, his due, he got the damn show on. Yeah. He got us our theater party things. He got a recording. And you didn't have like 40 different people making decisions. He made them all. Yeah. And made had wonderful people working for him, for the most part. He had a few people who were just killers, too. Oh. But uh, uh, he, so, and he had in his own the evil way. <laughs> he had a sense of humor, too. Uh, 
but he was he could just be very you know like things like we were doing 110 the shade agnes demille did the choreographer uh, choreography and when there in front of her dancers when she wasn't there he'd pound his foot on the floor sitting at the edge of the stage saying oh. agnes demille is over the hill agnes demille <laughs> in front of her dancers just screaming as loud as he could and uh, things much worse than that but mm -hmm. but as i say he did have a sense of humor he my favorite of one of the things he did <clears throat> he bought a cadillac and it wasn't it didn't run the way he wanted it to run and so he tried to take it back and the dealership wouldn't accept it mm -hmm. so he got all of his technicians designers painters and things and they they made a huge lemon and they attached it to the top of his car. So wherever he drove his Cadillac, it oh. had this huge lemon on top <laughs> of the car. <laughs> so I want to ask you to about the conceit of using the sun and the moon, which you did in both this and the Fantastics. Yeah, but I think we've kind of moved on from that, too. It was something we did for a while, but... Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, uh, it was it was useful for a number of shows, and then sometimes it isn't useful, you know. Yeah. So, what did you think about the recent Broadway revival of 110: The Shade? With Audra? Yeah. Yes. I thought it was terrific. I thought, I thought she was wonderful. Of course. Of course, our first woman was wonderful too, uh, Inga Swenson, and there was the revival at. New York uh, City Opera with Karen Zimba, who was also wonderful, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but Audra special indeed, very special. And I thought we did some, I got permission, Richard Nash had uh, deceased by that point, but I got permission from his family to, to uh, make it smaller and to do some rewrites. And I felt that worked and his, uh, his daughters came and they felt it worked too. So, uh, uh, and that now is part of the the available version that's done. Yeah. So, um, yeah, <clears throat> I would, gosh, I would sure love to do another show with her, oh, yeah. with Audra. Do you prefer and how do you decide when to work with a separate book writer and when to write the book yourself? I always prefer to write the book myself, always. And I have in everything we've ever done, with two exceptions. One was uh, 110 of the Shade, in, uh, which was written, the book was written by Richard Nash, who wrote the play, The Rainmaker, upon which it was based. And the other was, was and is a um, family musical, I would hesitate to call it a children's musical, it is for children, but it's also equally as much for adults. And it's not for terribly young children, like any time from six, seven, eight years old. It's a yeah. book called Mirette, a oh. musical called Mirette. And that project came to us with the book writer attached already, uh, Elizabeth Diggs. Do you? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's been in print and a, a, a big seller for 30 years now. And it's uh, a Caldecott winner, Caldecott Award, and it's a very terrific story. And uh, so we've made a, well, if you saw those 
those videos, I talk about that at some length in one of them, yeah. Oh, yeah. So next I want to ask you, how did you get involved in doing I Do, I Do, or how did you come up with the idea? Uh, we did not come up with the idea. After we had written 110 in the Shade, uh, and after Gower Champion, right after that, directed Hello, Dolly, which was a mega hit. Yeah. And uh, he invited us to lunch, and he told us what he had told us in the past, how much he loved the Fantastics, and he would love to do a show with us. Oh. Uh, and he had optioned a book by the Bimmelmans called The Street Where the Heart Lies. And he uh, wanted to ask if we'd be interested in working on a musical based on that. And we said, sure, we want to. We would like to work with him, too. Yes. So that's when Harvey rented his villa in Italy for a year. Beautiful place. Uh, and we went there and started working on it, on this musical. And then we got a long-distance call from Gower. At, at that time, the world of telephones was very different than it is now. Yeah. David Merrick had produced Hello, Dolly, which was this huge hit, as I say. He had also yeah. produced our 110 in the Shade. It was our first Broadway show. And he had the rights to a two-character musical called The Four Poster, yeah. written by a... Oh, I think he was Dutch, Jan de Hartog, and it had been uh, an international hit. Just two actors covering 50 years of a marriage. In this country, it had been a great big hit and a Tony winner, actually, for mm -hmm. Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. And uh, so he wanted to see if he could, if it could be made into a musical, David Merrick. And yeah. Gower was interested in the idea, and so Gower called and asked if we would like to exp explore, experiment with the idea, with the thought being that we would try to do it with Gower directing and choreographing, and with Mary Martin and Robert Preston as the two people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he told us, we said we were interested, he told us to forget about the other thing, Street for the Heart Lies, which I was happy to do, because I didn't like that too much anyway. <laughs> uh, and uh, then we started working on I Do, I Do. And uh, we were, I, I did the book, and we were instrumental, I think, in finding a way to make it work. Uh, which was unlike the original play, The Four Poster, which was a lovely play, but uh, what they did, actually, there are six episodes um, in a married life, and between, and they, it's six different ages of the couple, beginning on the wedding night and ending when they're very old and leaving their four-poster bed. Uh, but in, that, in the play, then they do the first wedding night scene, and then they close the curtains, and you wait, the audience sit in the darkness and wait for another five minutes or six till the actors have changed their makeup and costume, and then um, you open the curtain, and they do the next stage, and then close the curtain, all of which seems, uh, uh, 
seems very wrong for a musical, you know, yeah. because musicals need to flow. What you don't need, you're not doing that. They're they're different than straight plays, yeah. and uh, the depiction of reality is is different in some basic ways. For one thing, in musicals, the people have constant things where they sing to the audience, you know. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to a realistic play where you don't do that. But anyway, uh, so it was our idea, and before we agreed to do it with David Merrick and Gower, uh, we asked if we could have like uh, six weeks for us to play around with it and see if we could find a way to break it open. And we eventually decided that in between these scenes as they age, instead of closing the curtain, we would keep it going, and we would often see them change costumes. And, and occasionally, mm-hmm. you, at the end, they you actually set this a whole number when you see them take off their wigs and put on old age wigs and paint their, you know, paint the wiggles and do the whole thing. And the, we would treat the in between parts like little vaudeville uh, in one things where they would do numbers, not just about the scene that they're in, but about marriage in general, about life in general, and do them directly to the audience. So you'd have a more or less realistic scene in which were dramatized, but also sung. And then in between, you would have these little vocal numbers. For example, at the end of the wedding night sequence, they kiss and the lights dim down, then the lights come up, and he's sitting out there looking at the audience, and he sings song to the audience, and I love my wife. And then he mm-hmm. wakes her up, and they go, they, they're both barefooted, they're in their, you know, clothes, bed clothes, and they do a, bed, a barefoot soft shoe, and then he goes back to bed. Then she picks up his things and steps off stage for a minute, picks up to some of the clothing to get ready for the next scene, steps off stage for about 30 seconds and then steps back out and she's nine months pregnant. And then she sings a song called Something Has Happened to the audience again. So, and then when you go into the actual pregnancy scene at the time the baby is about to arrive, then that's, that's a, you know, like a more or less realistic scene, and if there's any song in that, it occurs uh, as part of the scene. So, what was it? What was it like to work with Robert Preston and Mary Martin, who were two big stars? Well, it was great, um, but, but it was uh, we we who we worked with basically was with Gower. Gower yeah. had supreme, and he, he told us when we started working with him, he said, uh, I, I love your work, I want, I'm really eager to work with you. He said, but you have to understand something. And the yeah. complexities of a musical, somebody is the head. He said, if you work with me, don't do it unless you agree to certain things. He said, I am a dictator. I'm a benevolent dictator, but I am a dictator. I will listen to you if you have suggestions or complaints, and I will try to be as fair as I can. But all ultimate decisions are are made by me. We agreed with that, and we stuck to it. 
And so what it meant was that we may have been around rehearsals peripherally, but and we did, you know, quite a bit of rewriting during the rehearsal process and out of town. But we always were dealing with Gower, never or almost never with directly with Mary or Robert. Oh. So you were saying in your book that this musical was written in more of what might be called the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical comedy form. So was that something that was easy for you, even though you hadn't really well, done it before? Well, um, the, the other, <clears throat> as I say, our first Broadway show was, had been 110 in the Shade. Yeah. And that was definitely in the Rodgers and Hammerstein. It was deliberately and, and definitely in the Rodgers and Hammerstein. In other words... Uh, not leading heavily on the what I call the presentational element, which means recognizing with the audience that you're both in the theater creating something together, you know? Yeah. So uh, the next musical that we did, the I Do, I Do, was in an interesting transition piece because uh, it because of the thing I just described to you with the with a little vulgar in one thing directly to the audience. Yeah. It was part of that presentational theater, but it was also the scenes themselves were treated in the same way as the writers were treating other scenes, all writing in the influence of Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. So it was a combination. And then beyond that, we went off into our experimental world where we opened our theater workshop and we did totally experimental works which were very heavily leaning on uh, the presentational theater. That's what they that was about primarily. Yeah. So you say that this show was bigger than the Fantastics, despite having only two people, whereas the Fantastics had eight. So describe sort of what you mean when you say that. Well, I mean they're both very small <laughs> in cast size actually but uh, although interestingly in in the last few years i've begun doing and, and working on and making available an adaptation of i do i do which oh. is done by a multi-generational and multi-racial cast where you have actually five different couples oh really um, with, uh, a, but all about the same married couple but sometimes they may be african-american sometimes they may in the one case there it's a gay couple and so forth mm -hmm. all going through the same kind of basic experience of, of getting through married life the ups and downs of it so when you were writing this show did you draw on your own marriage at the time at all oh yes definitely very definitely i had i was newly married when we started working on this, I'd been married about a year. And uh, yes, I definitely grew on marriage. But when we started to work on the show in Italy, searching for the way to break it open, yeah. we made a curious decision, but that was very, turned out to be very helpful and very right. We decided rather than starting out writing, you know, like when you, when you write musicals and you're, Base it on a play, 
you look at the play and you say, oh yeah, that speech or that scene or that moment, that's a song or that's musicalized, you know? Yeah. And, but we decided on this, we wouldn't start like that. We just would start writing anything <clears throat> about married life that we could, that came to, came to us and not knowing whether it would go in the show or, or if it would go in the show. And just to, to get a, like, and to see what ideas, and that opened up the possibility of these these little vaudeville things that I'm talking about. Yeah. In between the regular scenes, those are more. Those are almost all taken from that reservoir of things, including, oh, for example, uh, I asked my wife to write down. Um, six or seven or eight of my most irritating habits and I wrote six or seven or eight uh, of her most irritating habits and then I used those at one point uh, and I, I made, made lyrics and then Harvey set them to music uh, and we used those for a song and a sort of con friendly confrontational song so it's full of uh, things that I um, for example, one of the songs she sings to him is a song called You Chew in Your Sleep, and uh, which is what my wife told me. <laughs> uh, kind of shocking. But uh, anyway, um, I don't know if that answered the original question you had. But, uh, yeah, it did. So I want to ask you, later in 1996, you revised the show a little bit for a production at the Lambs Club. So, how did you sort of reapproach it? Well, I didn't do any structural reapproachment. Although, yeah. in the last year and a half, even in the last three months, I've done a lot of serious work in terms of structural oh, yeah. uh, reapproach. But at that case, it it I just um I took out some things that bothered me that always kind of bothered me and I thought could be made better. But it was mainly mm. just like sort of polishing and tweaking what, what the basic thing already was. Yeah. So uh, throughout your career, you've had the opportunity to revise a lot of your work. So do you believe that there's always room for revision after the show gets produced? Uh, there, there is if there is. Yeah. Uh, uh, but many times, I would say more often than not, and my my part of it and our and our work together, Harvey's I I continue revising. I think I mentioned in our last interview after fifty years, more than fifty years, I finally finished the the the, the final revision of the Fantastics. Oh, where okay. I where I didn't have any parts that bothered me anymore, but yeah. so at that point that I didn't, and that's an extreme example. Of course, you don't have the opportunity for many shows that run fifty years yeah. <laughs> to, to experiment with them. But um, yeah, no, I would say almost everything. I've, I've certainly made some significant improvements, and I do, I do. Uh, it formed in my later years by the, the, the women's lib movement, which is like was wonderful 
open doors and things from, you know, uh, just gave, gave me wonderful ideas and things that I feel are so much more honest than the original yeah. was charming, but, and, and lovely. And of course, Mary and Bob were dynamite, but, uh, it, it was as Yonder Hartog told us when we met him, he said, it's just a Valentine to marriage. And that's what it was. But yeah. as time has gone on, and as I, as I've gone on, I, and, uh, I've tried to make it more than that, more than just a Valentine, but to like cover some of the, the harsher and darker things, things that they survived. And, uh, and, and, actually ultimately brings them the closer together you know but uh mm. and i don't it's not quite as much like a 50s sitcom as it was mm. originally yeah. and uh there's a you know there's the original in the i think in one of the videos i talk about a scene in the second act uh which uh, i i basically rewrote almost completely and it's so much better but in it originally it's when they're the, the second of their children's married they're stuck together he's got his work she's feeling lonely and depressed and useless and yeah. in in both versions she sings a song what is a woman what is she made of why is a woman afraid of not being in love and so forth and so on and the original version that Mary sang with the end of it, so to be a woman, uh, to be a woman means being lonely. That's why she's only alive when in love. Well, looking at it in later times, I thought that is absolute bullshit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's so just a simple change there. And now she sings to be a woman can be so lonely, but that doesn't mean she's only alive when in love. Just the exact opposite of the original intention. Yeah. And in this later, in the first one then, and the end song of the first version, she, he, he finally, uh, uh, they have a, a, what seems to be an artificial argument and, and, uh, yeah. but then at the end, she sings, uh, she's, he tells her how much she's important, how she helps his writing, how he couldn't write anything without her. And that makes her happy. And she, they, she sings a song and he sings part of it, um, called someone needs me. The gist of which in the last line is as far as you see. So in other words, she now has a meaning because he needs her. Yeah. So I, I threw out that song. <laughs> And we came up with a much better one. And and what she says now is she says, I, I'm leaving you. She says, I can't, I, I, I don't know who I am. Don't you understand? I don't have any meaning anymore. All my life I've lived for other people. I've lived for you, for the children. Yeah. And I never have no idea what I need, what I want. And uh, she says, I can't, I can't do it anymore. And he asks her what she's going to do. And she says, I don't know. I Maybe write something. Does that surprise you? Yeah. And he says, 
It does surprise me. She says, that's good. It's good to be surprised sometimes. And she says, do you, would it make you anxious if I did that? He says, it might. She says, really? She said, well, that makes me feel better already. <laughs> and then he says, what are you going to write about? She says, marriage. And he said, marriage? She says, nothing fancy, just two people, a long marriage, just the thing. In other words, the implication <laughs> being that she's written this musical yeah. that we're looking at. <laughs> anyway, and so that was very, speaking of women's liberation, that was for me a man's liberation too. It was liberated mm -hmm. me to like get out of that trap I was in. But I've been yeah. able to do that with a lot of places in the show. And I think it's much stronger and better keeping all the really good things before or most of them, but yeah. trying to make it, as I say, less a Valentine and more about a an appreciation of the complex, sometimes painful and hurtful, but ultimately rewarding thing of marriage. Yeah. As, that, and as, as they both sing in the very last song when they're moving out of the house, the last verse of it, is that marriage is a very good thing, though it's far from easy, still it's filled this house with life and love. And that's, that's kind of that's what it's about. So around this time, as you did, how did you get the idea to do a musical about Colette? Okay. I mean, I've been interested in Colette ever since I discovered her, which was not until my 30 years old or something, and fascinated both by her writing and, uh, and also fascinated as I found out more about all the extraordinary things she did in her life, really going uh, everything. She, she did the whole works, you know, she yeah. was, country girl who was very knowledgeable about the growing world and, and natural life. Then she became the ultimate city person, expert on the jewelry. <laughs> and she became, she was in, she, she was a dance nude in the music hall. Oh. She was, had love affairs with men and with women. She got married, had a child. She was a war correspondent. She, you know, she just, extraordinary vast there are a number of things she undertook and pulled and accomplished yeah although i think she was the worst thing is i read later long after i wrote that musical <laughs> that in many ways she was a horrible person i didn't <laughs> i didn't know it because i only knew her about her her writing about herself which was often full of lies it was very inspiring and everything but she was probably the worst mother that ever lived and mm. i feel great pity for the poor girl who was her daughter oh yeah and so so i want to ask you about the production with diana rigg which did not yeah. end up leading which was not maybe as successful as later productions of the show uh, the one diana rigg was um it was a great big huge lavish production yeah. and uh 
the basic, I don't know, it's it's hard to know. Uh, I they had had the script had had then and has now some basic structural flaws that I I don't know how to solve. Never have been able to. But in addition to that, Diana Rigg, the, the two of the the Colette that we chose out of her long life was to take two episodes. First, when she was a young girl, married the older man who exploits her, starts her writing, but then signs his name to it, takes all the money, and her getting the courage to break free and leave him and sign her own name. That's the first act. The mm -hmm. second act is when she's older and had two marriages and uh, is uh, famous and uh, living in the south of France. She's still writing, but she has an affair and then falls in love with a man uh, just the opposite of first um, first marriage, a man 17 years younger than she. Oh. And uh, it has to do with the, the thing of, she's very worldly, very witty, very sharp and acerbic, but also very vulnerable. Yeah. But it has to do with her having the courage to go back through that door to, to risk a commitment, an emotional commitment, when she's been hurt uh, by that kind of thing. So, uh, Diana Rigg was absolutely wonderful in the second part, the older Colette, you know, and she was yeah. not good at all in the first part, vulnerable. Oh, Diana yeah. Rigg just uh, hated being that vulnerable, you know what I mean? Yeah. Hated this yeah, young girl. She, she, she did not sympathize with it, and she was not sympathetic doing it. So um, I can't blame her. She's a lovely, lovely actress, but that was a truth. I mean, the only thing I would blame her for is that the, that situation was there from the beginning. I just don't think she realized how much it would affect her, and we certainly didn't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she, she literally loathed having to do some of the things she did in the first act in terms of vulnerability and also her relationship with her mother and so forth and so on. But everything in Act Two, she was wonderful right up to the end when she played the very old Colette dying. She was terrific. So was there any change or much change between the original Colette, which was at the Ellen Stewart Theatre, and then how we know it now, which is as Colette Collage? Uh, yes. Well, for one thing, it's smaller, and uh, it is. It is also there, there was always the element of the presentational thing in the original, but it's mm -hmm. more explicit and more uh, organic in the later one. In the later one, as opposed to the original, you see old Colette as an old woman at her desk, and. All around her, or standing, all the people of her life, and sort of in the shadows, and then all the ghosts of her life. And so, when she talks to the audience and sings to them, then these ghosts come forward in, into her life and play out their parts of her life. <clears throat> but then they step back and they're watching always, they're always there. Like, uh, and sometimes even moving into things when they don't, you know, like, or sometimes 
singing in the background, whatever different things, so that there it's a it's a clear, firm idea that Colette mm. and her ghosts she's talking to us, and then she they come as they are involved they they come forward and be part of her life. I mean, it still has the a basic structural flaw that I don't know how I don't know how to fix. Yeah. So you were talking about sort of making it smaller and bringing out the more presentational aspect. So do you feel that you prefer writing or, more minimalist musicals? Uh, writing more intimate, is that what you said? Yeah. 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 I think so, yes. I think so. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I'm I'm not really a, a lot of Broadway is, is wonderful when you people get people who can do razzle dazzle, but I've never been very mm. good at razzle dazzle. Uh, uh, it doesn't that part doesn't interest me as much, and um, yeah. you know we pay a price for it, but. Uh, uh, at the same time, we gain a lot too. I think you know by yeah by taking people places where they may not have been before in a musical and and uh, using their own creative inner spirits to help make this thing happen. You know. Yeah. So another musical that you sort of worked on around this time was Grover's Corners, which was an adaptation of Our Town. So how did you get approached to adapt Our Town into a musical? Instance of two Broadway stage managers who were very successful, business, not they're business managers, Gatchel and Newfeld were able to get the rights to a musical version of Our Town. And uh, uh, we need to be able to adapt it and write it. As it's, it's always been a huge influence upon me. Yeah. Uh, the use of the stage manager as a narrator and being able to stop scenes and, and have the people be believable and yet like say we're, we're going to move, move along in the, I mean say to the other to the characters you know we're, we're, uh, thank you very much we're going to move on to the next scene or whatever you know so it's this mixture of like a reality and it and uh, admission that we're that, that it's also not real so um, and we wrote she is some of the best stuff we ever wrote but uh Gatchel uh, and Newfeld were very much involved with the Schuberts, and they were counting on the Schuberts to produce it. And uh, we did a workshop, which they paid for, and with good people involved. Yeah. And uh, but the Schubert turned it down. They uh, oh really for a lot of complex reasons, I guess, and some not so complex. But uh, so we kind of forgot about it, and then it was picked up from a new group of uh, across the country called it uh, the Theatrical, the National Alliance of the National Alliance of Theaters. Uh, You've heard of them or not? I have. They 
they were still very significant. I, they do a lot of things. And we, the, we were the first presentation reading they ever gave was of Grover's Corners. And it went over big. And so they immediately booked us uh, for a tryout in Chicago with a very nice regional lord theater called... Uh, uh, I should know this, and I'm, I'll probably think of it in a minute, but it's a beautiful theater and a beautiful thing outside of the outskirts of, the, of uh, Chicago with the, a place with a golf course and this and the wonderful facility. And we had a terrific cast, terrific orchestration and orchestra. And... Uh, it played there, and on the basis of that, it was picked up for a national tour, and uh, Mary Martin agreed to play the stage manager, oh, yeah. somewhat reluctantly, because she still, with it, with it in her heart of hearts, wanted to be Emily, you know. Yeah. Uh, she ha had never been in, and was, because she never was able to do this, never was in something where she where it wasn't about her, but it was about her talking about other people, you know. It was a strange yeah. development for her. But she agreed to do it, and we got booked immediately in all of the big national theaters across the whole United States, all of the, the mm -hmm. big, big, uh, those, you know, those regionals where they have uh, 1,500, 2,000-seat theaters, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> but Mary um, developed, cancer oh. right before we went to rehearsal so it was canceled and then uh we couldn't get another a production lined up before we lost the rights and then the oh. water state decided they really didn't want it to be a musical anyway because thornton had never wanted it to be a musical and they felt um musicals should be like less serious like for example, Hello Dolly, which is based on Thornton Wilder's play, The Matchmaker. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit more about the writing side of it as well. So you talk, as I mentioned earlier, one of the ideas in your book is that when you get approached to adapt something very famous, you have to sort of bring your own style to it. So how did you sort of bring your own style or approach to this? To uh, well, we we didn't hesitate to sign on this one because uh, it was clearly my style, our style, but me in terms of like choosing the basic framework style was based upon Thornton Wilder and our town anyway. Yeah. It's based upon Thornton Wilder and William Shakespeare in combination. So uh, there was no hesitation or doubt because... Uh, it was, uh, and so what we did, <laughs> what we did in Chicago, I played the stage manager. Oh, uh, I did very well, but uh, when we came to songs, Harvey and I was singing together. And so it began with Harvey and I as a piano, like in a backwards audition, at this big mm. grand piano. And I started singing to, I mean, talking to the audience about this, this musical is called, so, you know, just like the play opens. And then we sang the first song, and then, then the people began to appear, 
and they joined, they got more and more close. And then the orchestra, which was uh, out of sight, uh, about, I don't know, like 12 pieces or 14, uh, started in beautiful orchestrations. And so um, that was the that was the way it worked there. Yeah, as if as if it just begun. If I were to do it again, I wish I had the right. I'd keep the songs, but I would I would somewhat shift the original structure. I had begun to anyway. I was taking it already had begun to take it more and more, less and less about a New England town which I think in our day and time is just a trap, you know. Yeah. Because uh, uh, it makes it just, it, it's too exclusive. Whereas yeah. what's being covered isn't at all, you know. And it's very often self-congratulatory, smug even, you know. Yeah. I mean, I love it. It's my favorite play. But there is that element. If I were to do it now, these days, I would have a multiracial cast I wouldn't even set it in New Hampshire. It would be in Grover's Corners, but I wouldn't say where it is or what, you know. Oh. And I would have, instead of a narrator, kind of folksy New England narrator, I would have four or five people of different ethnic origins saying those speeches and dividing among themselves and singing oh. these things. So that it's... Uh, because it's not... The, what it's portraying is universal. Yeah. So if you if you were to get the rights back, you would want to do it again? Oh, yes. Mm. It's got some of our best music ever. Oh, really? So I don't want to miss anything. So right now I'm going to go back to two of the things I think I skipped, which are Philemon and Celebration. So first I want to ask you about Philemon. So how did you choose this sort of unlikely, I guess, plot for a musical? Uh, well, <clears throat> first of all, um, just to go back to celebration for brief, to make it a little, a little bit sequential. Okay. When we had I Do, I Do on Broadway and the Fantastic still running off Broadway and we had some money, we, Harvey and I did something we wanted to do for ever since we were students in college and, and got interested in musicals, we rented a building in Midtown, Midtown Manhattan, 47th Street, just a block up from Joe Allen's restaurant, right in the middle of the theater district. We rented the whole building. It was like six story. And it had been at one point a, a, a wedding, the first two floors, they had taken our floor, so it's high, high ceilings. Uh, for Jewish immigrants, I mean, not for, yeah, I'm not sure Jewish, but it was a wedding chapel for immigrants there in what was in, at that point, called Hell's Kitchen. And uh, Harvey designed and, and, and helped construct and paint this wonderful set. And anyway, then we set about, for a number of years, trying to write originals which we oh. had never done, which not many people do in theater. Oh, and understandable, understandable. Yeah. The theater, musical theater, is in so many ways like Shakespeare's. The structure of it is. And but it's also interesting that I think Shakespeare only wrote three originals in his entire life, I think. Yeah. And they were all 
adaptations, just like what you do with musicals. Anyway, the first one we did was Celebration. And then the second one we did was Philemon. <clears throat> and uh, part of what we were trying to do in Celebration, to go back there a minute, uh, mm -hmm. we tried to combine the holy theater, the theater of myth and ritual, and and the theater of the streets, the theater of burlesque and clowns and fart jokes. And uh, I, uh, we decided we were going to try. Well, we we just <laughs> we were so fearless. My God, but that's I. I hope any of your listeners who are young writers, I hope you will be fearless and take a chance and, and don't be afraid to fail. That's the only way you're ever going to do something interesting yeah. uh, eventually. But anyway, um, we were trying to combine <coughs> these two things. So we we went back and I found, like just the other day, by going through old books, I found the source. <laughs> it was like, I have a... Of all things, I had a book called Mesopotamian Rituals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not the way most Broadway musicals get written, by the yeah. way. So we we chose a a well, first for our celebration, we had chosen a, a ritual for a Sumerian legend and tried to update it, and make it into like a Tim Burton locale. Anyway, for Philemon, uh, I, I had always, uh, I came of age, I was college age during the exact years of World War II. I entered college in 41. Yeah. I mean, high school, entered high school in uh -huh. 41 and graduated in 40. Five, and those were the years of the war. And then right after that, as I was going to college, we saw for the first time the pictures from the Holocaust and from the death camps. And I was just like, uh, I and everybody, I mean, just like horrified and like mm. just uh, stripped emotionally. I mean, like, and I always wondered because um, uh, even though I was in the army and served my country, the truth of the matter is that I was and am a coward, and, uh, and I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> but I, but I kept wondering if I had been in Germany as a young man or any age man uh, at the time this was beginning to happen, would I have had the courage? to protest or to to do anything to, to to object much less going to the underground just like doing anything to like say no you can't do this this you so yeah uh, I came across in my I did a lot of reading and and ancient things and and uh, at about early stages of the theater, which I'm drawn to, the early forms of theater. But there was one by a British historian named Allardyce Nichol, 
and uh, called Masks, Masks, Mimes, and Miracles. And uh, the very first page, he tells the story of an actor in Antioch, in the Roman province of Antioch, during the reign of the Emperor Diocletian, when they were having their last big roundup of Christians and Jews, both people who were like not swearing proper allegiance to the Roman gods, and uh, an actor who is hired by a Christian man to who's is loath to take the necessary oaths, but is afraid of the consequences if he does. So he hires this actor to become him a person, and and uh, then in the story as we developed it, it what took that idea and changed it so that it becomes he, he's hired to go into the underground by the Romans actually to be a to find out and give names and so forth. And anyway, it's he becomes the person he's impersonating and eventually although he has the information that could save his life, he goes to his own death. Uh, uh, and and uh, as he has this vision of a more of a a better something better than this a better world can possibly exist than this anyway something like that so did that answer your question yeah it did so i want to ask you at the end of the show as you were saying he decides to stay a christian and be killed rather than i think mean, uh, you have to understand the cat what our big breakthrough and wonderful thing for we've worked on it for a long time and it couldn't work but finally <clears throat> we made their hero with instead of making him somebody named Kakyan I mean of Philemon we had him a, a low-down street clown uh, named Kakyan who was charming but totally uh, not were not only non-religious but uh, uh, who's like uh, has no morals whatsoever, yeah. and he, he, the girl that he's living with, who who appears on the street show with him, you know, the little clown show, he persuades her to to prostitute herself to get some money to help him out, things like that, you know. Yeah. But he is at the same time charming, and then so the story becomes he agrees he he gets in real trouble with the law, and he agrees with the Roman commandant to go into prison put on the robes of this man who's this saint named Philemon, who has been tortured to death by the Romans, but the, and who's the people in that area don't know, and to become that person. And then the, the story is, is the process by which he can't, where he changes. And uh, he does, yes, become a Christian, but what he, in, to this extent, he, uh, he he becomes compassionate. That's what it is, yeah. and he something in him uh, uh, finally objects to treating people in this totally inhumane way. And so, with that, he goes through his own uh, thing with a. a a kind of vision at the end of uh, 
of, of reclaiming the human spirit, something yeah. like that. Well, I want to ask you, because it's sort of an interesting parable, because in the thing that you're writing about, it's the Romans who are persecuting the Christians, and then in the real thing that's not mentioned by name, which is the Holocaust, it was the Christians who were persecuting the Jews. So how did you sort of, what did you sort of think the message of the show was? Well, in this, I perhaps altered, but there are enlarged certain facts. Uh, or at that time, that original persecution in uh, Diocletian's time, where he was, in fact, also rounding up Jews and Christians. I mean, to me, it's not the Christianity. Uh, I mean, if there's one thing, the, the, the Christian dogma that's grown up, I mean, this gets to a long discussion, but uh, Roman Catholicism, which was the basic Christianity, you know, for a long time, it's actually, in many ways, much more Roman than Christian. Yeah. Uh, and all of the things about it, and the, the the sense of empire in it, and and entitlement, and even just having the many gods turned into saints, you know, and so forth. But they're following the same thing. And um, uh, what what for me, at least. Uh, and also, a lot of the things they wrote, <clears throat> a lot of the things in the Bible, I think, are absolutely in the, the New Testament, are, are, uh, are malformations of the actual message of Christianity. And there's yeah. a wonderful book a few years ago uh, by Elaine Pago, a great his, uh, religious historian and brilliant writer, uh, about this, the, one of the original disciples, Thomas, called in, in doubting Thomas. But there was a basic struggle in, in the, when they were deciding what was going to be in the Bible and what was going to be left out. You know, uh, they had lots and lots of texts, a lot of which didn't get in. But the two, uh, Paul and Thomas, were in opposition to each other in a very basic way. I'm getting way off here, but I'm, okay. I'm into it. I'm as well go. Which was uh, Paul, whose way prevailed, and he got his end of the Bible, was that Christ was the Son of God, special, different from us, Especially sent down and so forth and then that whole bit, you know what I mean? But yeah. the other disciple who was equally involved with all of this, Thomas believed that Christ was a man who elevated himself to godhood rather than a god who lowered himself to manhood. You see, you just have yeah. register with you what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, what it means is that there is potential in all of us for those early parts of the Bible before it became huge business 
to feel compassion and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you and, and turn the other cheek and to be to speak out against bigotry and cruelty and so that's the part of in as much as I am a Christian but I, I am and I am not I'm a little bit but that's the part and that's that's the message that I'm trying to emphasize in this yeah. is basically compassion and it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Christian or uh, Islamic for that matter to the extent that you are striving to feel for other people then then, then as far as I'm concerned you're on the right side of religion yeah and so that's kind of what this is about it's not about it's not about Christian text or dogma in any way really because uh, anyway is that, is that does that clarify anything you or just yeah. muddy it up Yes, it did. It did. So, okay, good. I want to ask you a question about directing it, which you also did with this, as you have done with some of your shows. So, you talk about in your book the way in which you used wooden platforms to help sort of tell the story. So, could you sort of talk yeah. about that? Well, I mean, it was just... Um, uh, I don't know that it's wooden by the end. There's some, I'm going, seeking to connect us to some of the ingredients of the most primitive theater. Yeah. Uh, and uh, once you put things up on a platform, you're acknowledging that it is a theatrical presentation or a ritual. <clears throat> So, uh, I don't know if that, uh, in my recent thinking and the notes I'm making now about the theater that will also go into this website, uh, I feel that there's an opportunity to reach out for a certain kind of theater, a theater that uh, in which the magic comes from the uh, the brilliance of the language and the music of whatever, and also the, from the open admission that you, the performers, the writers, and the audience or at a theatrical, at an event, together. And together, by combining your two potent forces that the audience brings and that you bring as a creator, that you will make an experience that can make you laugh and cry and on, on certain rare and wonderful occasions can affect you who you are and uh, and I feel that that if one were to pursue that if you young people were to pursue that you could we could turn away from we're still t 
who's too much, even who made great advances, we're still locked into the 19th century and early 20th century stuff of a box, a a curtain pretended reality. You know, you pull yeah. the curtain and all that's a real scene. But if you don't need that on stage, then maybe you don't need a stage at all, per se. So much, all of the money in Hollywood, I mean, in New York and Broadway goes to the real estate people. Actually, that's where all the, the most of the money goes. Mm. Uh, whether it's on Broadway or off Broadway. Uh, and in regionals and in colleges, the money very often goes to building a new theater or better mm. machinery and so forth. I say... What happens if you strip it down and you don't have any fucking scenery or any, uh, maybe not even any lights, although it's sure nice to have them if you can get them, <laughs> but then you find a place, a space, and and then you can try to some, do something interesting and try to find people who can might be possibly moved by it. And then you can charge a lot less money so that you don't have to be an elite class and you don't have to go expecting lots of razzle-dazzle, you know? You yeah. go for a fairly intimate, personal experience in search of mutual joy and revelation. Yeah. And uh, I think the emphasis, if people would you know, um, um, pursue that. I think it could be gratifying, and I think it also could make the theater pertinent again in a new way. Yeah. So in the spirit of sort of talking about theater now, I want to ask you about some of the theater that you're working on now. So sadly, your longtime collaborator, Harvey Schmidt, passed away a few years ago. So since yes. since then... How have you sort of found new writing partners? I have uh, written with three partners since then. Uh, the first one is Jacques Offenbach, and we had a terrific relationship. <laughs> He'd been dead for 200 years. So he never gave, gave me any grief about any of my lyrics or anything. So and that was a show, it is a show called uh, The Game of Love. And then uh, a, a musical based upon the film Harold and Maude with a composer, a wonderful composer, Joseph Falcon. And finally, a musical based upon The Tempest with an, another wonderful, very brilliant young composer named Andrew Gurley. And, um, you know, um, I had a wonderful creative relationship and, and friendship with Harvey over, you know, half a century. Yeah. But the truth also is that for 20 years now, I would say, uh, Harvey has stopped composing and had moved back to Texas. And so it's not yeah. as if we'd been in active collaboration for quite a long time, really. Yeah. So... Uh, 
So I want to ask you about The Tempest, which is, or La Tempesta, as you call the musical, which is something new that you're writing. So how have you sort of taken Shakespeare's language and style and adapted it to a musical? Well, uh, <laughs> I I mean, in case I haven't mentioned it before, I mean, the, the, my inspiration has always been from day one, never musical theater, but always Shakespeare. Yeah. So, and yet at the same time, working on this, I figure if I, I feel free to make some changes, which I have, and even though a lot of people are going to be upset about it, I don't think I'm going to do much damage to the Tempest at this point in its career, you know. Yeah. But uh, so I feel free to open. I and um, I lean heavily upon the this presentational form, and uh, which Shakespeare did not do in this play, but which I do. Yeah. Prospero constantly talks and sings to the audience, more to the audience than to anybody else on stage. Oh, really? And uh, in the very opening, <clears throat> it opens on an empty stage and Prospero comes out in his old tarot robe with his staff, wooden staff, and he says to the audience, I draw a magic circle in the sand like this. And there's music as he draws it. He says, I touch the circle and it turns to light like this. He touches it and it becomes a shaft of light. It's filled with possibility, a journey of discovery, but only if we both believe that this can be true. For the secret of the magic lies not just in the magician, but also inside you. And he sings, I ask you now on this bare stage to create an enormous storm. I ask you when I speak of lightning that you see it splice the night. One or two passing shadows must you turn into a fleet. And then when the storm is over, I ask for you to come with me and spirit-like to fly through time back to the island which was, is mine. And most of all, I ask you now on this bare stage to take this empty circle and fill it full of life like mm -hmm. this. And he, this is the thing, the lightning begins and the, the storm uh, which opens the show. So um, there's no address to the audience in, in the Tempest at all. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and at the very end of this, in this version, uh, at the very end, when he's when it's sort of resolved, uh, he and the uh, he leads the the group of actors in a song called "Where Such Stuff as Dreams Are Made On," and in the course of it, they they disappear and disappear, and <laughs> he's left alone. Then he says to the audience, uh, "This." circle of light I now extinguish my secret spells forego for this rough magic I hear abjure and when the music ceases playing which even now it does I'll break my wooden staff and deeper than did ever plummet sound 
I'll drown my magic book like this. He breaks his staff and all mm -hmm. the masking that there is pulled away. And you see the actors backstage getting out of costume. Oh, you see mm -hmm. the stage manager, his earphones and his uh, pad, you know, and uh, see stacks of scenery. And Prospero looks at the audience and smiles and he puts the stack back together magically. And the, uh, the masking is restored, so you don't mm -hmm. see him anymore. And then he says, farewell. And uh, so that that's in terms of form. In terms of the story itself, I changed that basically. In the mm -hmm. original, he's, uh, he's been terribly wronged by his brother who threw him and his infant daughter on the rotting carcass of a ship and sent him out to die, but they wound up on this sort of magic deserted island. At the end, uh, I mean, but it, but even in the play, Shakespeare play, from the very first scene, he's trying to get his daughter back together with the son of his worst enemy, which mm. implies reconciliation. At mine, it is not that way at all. And I'll just quote you another lyric early on that he sings. Let me get... He sings, it comes upon me sometimes when I least expect it, la tempesta. I'm sitting at my table reading, dreaming nothing, la tempesta. Like a cloud on the horizon, like a tiny little cloud that slowly grows big-bellied till it suddenly bursts open, giving birth to a dozen clouds, all screaming, reaching, breeding, and the waves climb high inside my mind, and the lightning strikes inside my mind. There's a vicious storm inside my mind, and that storm is La Tempesta. Mm -hmm. I have been wronged, and I will be revenged. So, that's quite different from the Shakespeare play. And then, the, in my version, the story of the play is the process which is in which he's finally able to let go of the hatred and the anger and free himself of that heavy burden. So then, the last thing I want to ask you is just if you could repeat to the listeners about your upcoming website and what we can sort of look forward to seeing on that. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. I, yes, we're working very hard. <clears throat> Me and, and uh, Harvey's executor, Dan Shaheen, who's a very good friend and longtime supporter and ally of ours, to put together a website, which will we hope to have it open in a month or two, oh. uh, which will be under the name Jones and Schmidt and Jones and Schmidt. <laughs> so it'll be all of our works together. Plus, a lot of things I've done separately, and a lot of things Harvey's done. It's going to have a lot of Harvey's paintings um. and some of his classical music compositions. And uh, it has my autobiography I've been working on and never finished for 30 years. Mm. But it's, some, it's a kind of fun read, actually. And it has, um, as of now, eight short, like 30-minute um, videos of me talking about uh, eight of our shows, my shows, oh, wow. uh, and uh, talking about the history of them and then doing a scene or two of quoting some lyrics, um, sort of to like 
hopefully to interest people into investigating them, checking them out with Music Theater International. It also will have, uh, have a whole section of, of poetry and lyrics mm-hmm. in a section called From Bed to Verse. And, uh, and, uh, it's, and it's just going to, and they're going to keep adding things to it also. Just uh, a lot of stuff. We're trying to make it as much fun as possible, but also yeah. to have a lot of information. So, and that, I don't know exactly when it will be available, <laughs> but it, it's coming. So if yeah. any of them, any, and <clears throat> anybody who gets a copy of any of this stuff, you're welcome to send it to anybody else. The whole point at this point is not to like make royalties from my book or from this or that or whatever. It's just to like make our, we want our work to, particularly the work that isn't as well known, some of which is very interesting. And I think if you will have a chance to check out some of these videos, you'll find out provocative and very much fun too. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. It was an honor for me to be able to talk to you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I know that you enjoyed this illuminating conversation, and I know that we'll all be looking out for Jones and Schmidt and Jones and Schmidt. Our next episode will be with Broadway dancer Eileen Casey. Eileen Casey is a true veteran, having appeared on stage in Hello, Dolly, West Side Story, The Unsinkable, Molly Brown, Seesaw, Pippin, Mame, Promises, Promises, On the Town, Sugar, Marilyn, The Pajama Game, Dancin', and My One and Only, and having also worked with Ethel Merman, Mary Martin, Bob Fosse, Tommy Toon, and just about everyone else there is. So I hope you enjoyed that episode, too. Thank you for tuning in.